Good morning. Thank you again for being here and for, with me, diving right into a preaching series from Proverbs when I have already confessed to you I've never actually preached through uh, the book of Proverbs before, but we shall dive in together. We are in chapter 1 still, we're beginning at uh, verse 8. What I'd like for us to especially see in this passage is uh, how it is that wisdom comes to us in the setting of relationship. That may be uh, something you've not thought about in your study of Proverbs, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately, and I believe that it's here in this passage. Uh, Little theologians, it's hard to draw a picture of a relationship, and yet all of these Proverbs, they come to us in the setting of a relationship. So as I preach this morning and uh, make that argument, little theologians, Would you draw for me a picture of our congregation? Draw a picture of uh, all of us uh, together. All of us have a relationship with each other in the church of Jesus Christ. And so that's how um, I'd ask you to draw a picture of relationships. It also is a way for me to ask you not to draw a picture of me. I don't mind those pictures, uh, but draw a picture of the entire congregation uh, together. I have a lot of pictures of myself. That came out weird, sorry. (laughs) Uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 19 is where we are. Let's uh, let's first go to God in in prayer. Well, Father, uh, we are about to read your word and to study it and contemplate on it and to do so uh, in the context of the saints and to do so uh, in many ways at the mercy of my lips. Uh, Father, you're in charge of uh, all of those little micro-processes. You know what you're doing. You know how to teach us. So we thank you for this time. Be with us as we look at this passage uh, from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder Uh, Throw in your lot among us, we will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set ambush for their own lives." Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. This is the word of our Lord. Proverbs sound to our ears an awful lot like uh, rules, regulations, uh, commands. And in many ways, that's exactly what Proverbs are. Proverbs are meant to change the way uh, that we behave as Christian people. As we walk with God, uh, we're to behave uh, in a way that's commensurate with that relationship with God. 
But it is true, isn't it, that many of us, most of us, don't care very much for rules uh, and regulations. And just the notion that there are rules and commands that we must comply with if we're to be a follower of Jesus, just the very notion is a challenge to us. But it is interesting, isn't it, that all of us are willing to follow certain rules if we think those rules will guarantee that we get what we want. Let's think about that for a moment. The notion of keeping rules is not something we really like, but think about those rules you're perfectly willing to keep if you can get that which meets the desires and passions of your heart. In many ways, we cannot but follow rules. This passage is a passage about a relationship, but I think it really the entire book of Proverbs is very relationship-oriented. What this passage is telling us is that a relationship with God requires instruction and teaching. And this passage also tells us that the alternative to these instructions and teachings is a relationship of self-destruction. Let me say that again and show you how I've outlined the sermon. A relationship with God requires instruction and teaching. The alternative to this relationship is a relationship of your own self-destruction. I want to begin by talking about relationship in this passage, but then uh, we need to talk about a promise that is made by a sinner and then a warning that is made by a father. The setting of relationship a sinner's promise, and then a father's warning to motivate his son. You can think about the outline this way, relationship, uh, promise, and motivation. Uh, You see right there at the beginning in verses uh, 8 and 9 that relationship is an important setting for all uh, wisdom. Uh, From the very beginning, we need to understand that uh, we have here a man who is speaking to his son. Uh, Hear, my son, it says in verse 8, your father's instruction. The father is speaking, but we need to note that the mother is not a mere figurehead, uh, someone who's not speaking. She seems to be speaking as well. She uh, has a teaching that she offers to the son. There's a relationship here, isn't there, between uh, parents uh, and their son. Now, by this, I don't want us to think that Solomon is elevating this parent-son relationship in a way uh, in which we're to think parent-son relationship is the best relationship in the world. Solomon knows that not everyone whom he is addressing has good parents who offer good Uh, instruction and teaching. In fact, Solomon surely knows that uh, not everyone whom he is addressing actually has living parents at all. And this is especially the case. Solomon knows very well that not every parent has kids who listen to their teaching and instruction. Uh, Solomon knows that most of his kids didn't listen to his teaching and instruction. I say that because I want us to understand that Solomon is not writing a parenting book. That's not what I mean when I say that relationship is the setting of wisdom. If you could look forward in this passage to verse 20, uh, who is it that's speaking there? It's not the father. 
And it's not the mother, it's uh, wisdom who is crying aloud in the streets. If Solomon, he's not just writing a book that uh, highlights a parenting relationship between parents and son. Now there's something more important even than that. There's a a relationship that is better than a parent-son relationship. It's a relationship with wisdom. And wisdom isn't just crying out to children. Wisdom is crying out to everyone in the streets, everyone in the marketplaces. Wisdom seems to be crying out very loudly to anyone who will listen. And when Solomon is talking about the relationship between a parent and a son, he's hinting at a divine relationship between God and the world, and especially between God and his children. Who is it that will one day cry out in the streets? It's Jesus himself. He cries out in the streets and in the marketplaces to all who will hear him. And then notice in, this, uh, in these first couple of verses that uh, there is something that's being uh, spoken. It's instruction and teaching. I think we are to understand instruction and teaching as being by and large uh, uh, synonymous or at least really close uh, partners. Instruction as guidance and correction, uh, perhaps even discipline. And in the Hebrew word for teaching, that's the word for uh, Torah. Uh, This can be uh, understood as law or instruction, or it can also be understood as doctrine. The instruction and teaching uh, is Solomon's way of gathering together the wholeness of uh, good, full-bodied teaching. This is exactly what uh, a son needs to hear. But you notice something in verse 9, don't you? It's not just a matter of hearing. The instruction and teaching should be heard, listened to. But in verse 9, the instruction and teaching is meant for so much more than that. The instruction and teaching uh, is meant to be a graceful garland for your head. The original audience would know that this, uh, this uh, calling out of the head is a representation of the entire body. That this instruction and teaching is actually meant to not just be worn upon the head, but actually to permeate the entire body. And similarly, the original uh, reader would understand from verse 9 that that phrase, uh, pendants for your neck, would refer to something uh, that's uh, seen by others. Other people uh, see this wisdom and instruction. And so it's not just a matter of listening to this uh, teaching and instruction. It's ensuring that it permeates our entire body and ensuring that it's on display for others. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, let me make a confession here. For, for many years, I've understood that the main uh, conclusion drawn from passages like 8 and 9 goes something like this. Uh, kids, listen to your parents. Listen to your parents. It's important enough to permeate your whole body and to be displayed to everyone uh, in public. Listen to your parents. In fact, I go one step further, and sometimes I've measured my affection for my children based upon how well what I've said to them uh, permeates them and is seen by those around them. One of the things I've noticed as my kids get older, I mean, one's even moved uh, away, is I'm not as convinced as I once was that these two verses are meant to say, children, listen to your parents. 
Behind the hope that our children will listen to and wear what we say is the confidence that our children know that their parents love them and desire a relationship with them. You see who's taking initiative here in verses 8 and 9. It's the parents. And the parents aren't uh, lunging forward uh, with uh, the instruction and teaching. The instruction and teaching actually happens in the context of, well, an intimate relationship. I, I, I just don't think there's any way to understand this teaching and instruction unless the teaching and instruction is in the setting of an intimate relationship. My son opens our passage in verse 8. Hear my son. The original audience would have uh, understood that that was a phrase of intimacy. Uh, There's a kind of relationship here that predates the teaching uh, and the instruction. And in fact, this, uh, this appeal of the Father when He says, Hear, my Son, it shows up again in 10, and it shows up again in 15. A relationship is the setting for this instruction and teaching. Now, the best evidence for this, I think, is a bit experiential. Again, I used to just think this, that Proverbs were mostly about children, listen to your parents, do as I say, and I'll know that you love me by what you do. But this instruction and teaching points to the instruction and teaching that we have from God our Father. I find myself in my ministry of counsel to others uh, reminding Christians over and over again, don't you know that your Heavenly Father loves you? Don't you know that He's done everything necessary that He might come close to you and have an intimate relationship with you? Don't you know that He's taken initiative to do this? Uh, Don't you notice this about God? I tell Christians this over and over again. His instruction and His teaching, it may be hard for you, but this is what you need for your life because your Father loves you and He knows how to take care of you. He calls you my son and my daughter. He loves you. And for this reason, let His instruction and teaching permeate everything about you and let others look at your life and see not your own instruction and teaching, but the instruction and teaching of your Heavenly Father displayed to others. Don't be afraid of this. He loves you and He cares for you and He knows what's best for you. I counsel that all the time. But also during that time, I've looked at verses 8 and 9 as a message, children, listen to your parents. Proverbs are about relationship, about what God has done to secure that relationship with us. As, as an alternative to that, listen to verses 10 through 14. This is the sinner's promise. Now, part of the instruction and teaching from dad and mom is that some sinners are going to try and teach you as well as us. They're going to offer you instruction and teaching. Now, did you know that Solomon repeats the, the words uh, of the sinner's promise in this passage with, with no commentary at all or very little? Look in your Bibles at verses 11 through 14. You see where the quotes begin and the quotes end? Solomon is just copying and pasting the promise that's made by sinners. He's dropping it right in to chapter 1. All that Solomon says by way of comment is that they seek to entice you. To entice you. 
This word in the Hebrew really means that they're uh, treating you as if you're gullible. You'll believe anything. Sometimes this Hebrew word is translated as enticed, but sometimes it's translated um, as a, a little bit more broadly. And so I would ask you this morning, have you ever been flattered, allured, persuaded, deceived, seduced? You experience that. That's, what, that's what behind, what's behind uh, this four-verse quote. They make promises. And look what the sinner promises. The sinner promises a kind of fellowship. You see in verse 11, come with us. Come with us. The, the phrase, uh, let us, appears twice in this uh, promise of the sinner. And look how often in these four verses uh, the word we shows up. And verse 14, throw in your lot among us, be with us. We're the ones you want to be with. Look in verse 14, we will all have one purse, one community, equal sharing. These sinners, they promise a kind of fellowship. I think there's three promises here. One is fellowship, but look, they also promise um, uh, gain, You see in verse 13, we shall find all precious goods, we shall fill our houses, literally, we shall fill our mansions with plunder. You have mansions and they'll be full. You're going to walk away with more than you can possibly dream of. They promise fellowship, they promise gain, but they also promise a life with no consequences, no risk. You see how they confess all of their all of their plans. Look at verse eleven. Come with us. Let us wait for blood. Let us lie and wait for blood. Ambush the innocent without reason. They're not hiding any of their any of their plans. Why? Because they want you to know that we'll never get caught. Look at verse twelve. We'll swallow them alive. They'll go down to the pit. Who's going to accuse us? Nobody. These sinners, they make this enormous promise, a kind of fellowship. Uh, They promise to give you uh, all kinds of gain, and they promise uh, that you will never, uh, ever be condemned for what you've done. Do you think any of this applies to our ordinary life? A promise of fellowship in which something desirable is gained and in which there will be no consequences. Really, the the driving temptation here is greed, isn't it? That's what verse 19 says. It's greed, unjust gain. But these sinners are capitalizing on something. They're capitalizing on our desire to get something. They're alluring us, making promises. And and really, applying the Proverbs is understanding how that fits in our current uh, setting here. In what ways would we be allured by something? In what ways would we be allured by something that's large beyond our dreams and in a way in which there's no consequences and we have a kind of community around those goods? Can you think of a situation like that? For me, I think of high school. I think of the promise to be a part of the cool club, the promise to have status of the cool club and to be with cool people and to get to go to all the cool events and nobody will stop me from getting what I want because they'll all want to be just like me and nobody is ever going to judge me because I'm cool. And that sounds childish, I know, 
But this is often how sin works. In fact, we could call this a paradigm for our lives today. I mean, how often do we feel as though our kids uh, not only feel this in school, but we feel this as, well, as parents? We feel like we need to be uh, connected to the right people who have the right opinions and the right salaries. All of our kids, they need to be in the right school And we don't want any judgment in this crowd. And we feel this. We're lured by this. Lots of gain, a sense of fellowship and community, and absolutely no condemnation. Nobody escapes these promises of the sinner. But there's something more. So look what happens in verses 15 through 19. We go from the the promises that a sinner makes to us, and we go to now the the motivation that a a father gives to a son. You know, these parents in this passage, they know that the behavior of their son matters. When they say in verse 15, do not walk in the way with them. And when they command, hold back your foot from their paths. What are dad and mom concerned about? Aren't they concerned about not merely hearing and not even merely uh, wearing the teaching and instruction? They're concerned about the application of the teaching and instruction. The dad and the mom, they don't want their children to uh, follow these paths. It's not just a matter of not being enticed. They don't want them to walk in that direction. These things that I'm telling you, says dad and mom, are things that ought to be heard and worn, but also demonstrated in your behavior. But do you notice how they don't motivate their son? We know this as uh, parents, if you are a parent. We motivate our children. We want them to do what we tell them. But we know this as children as well, how our parents have sought to instruct us. But notice uh, how this dad does not motivate his son. Notice that this dad does not ignore the intensity of the temptation. Dad knows the temptation. For four verses, he has described the promises that the sinner makes. How does he know these promises? Because he himself has heard these promises, felt the temptation of these promises, And we know after the fact that Solomon walked in the temptation of these promises, living within these promises. How does a dad not motivate his son to behave? He doesn't ignore the intensity of the temptation, but is aware of it, calls it out, holds it out before his son. But notice also that he doesn't fill his son with guilt and shame. He doesn't tell him, I know you have thought about doing these things before. How disgusting. He doesn't do that, does he? Surely he assumes that his son has heard these promises and has been tempted and has even entertained the possibility in his head of following these promises. But not only does he not ignore the intensity of the temptation, but he doesn't doesn't fill his son with guilt and shame. There's something else he doesn't do. He doesn't threaten his son with the punishment of God. We know from the Bible that godly instruction and teaching may sometimes need to include a threat of God's punishment. 
Scripture tells us that we are uh, to be reminded of God's instruction because, well, we will be held accountable before Jesus. This is a mysterious teaching in Scripture, but it's there. And these parents, however, they don't terrorize their children into better behavior by threatening them with the judgment of God. They don't ignore the intensity of the temptation. They don't fill their child with guilt and shame. And they don't threaten with the punishment of God. How do they do it then? How do they motivate good behavior in this intimate relationship? I think they do two things. Look, verse 15 is very clear, isn't it? Do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. The first thing they do is they command. They don't abdicate authority with silence and they don't ignore the seriousness of the threat. They actually speak. Now, they're speaking on the authority of God's word, but they speak, they command. They're doing this from the position of a relationship But it's not a stoic, distant relationship or a silent relationship. It's one with speaking and commanding. You see right there in verse 15, along with the command, my son, my son. And so they command, but they do so from a setting of a relationship. But they also do this. They motivate this good behavior that's heard and worn and displayed and behaved they diagnose the world around them for their children. You know, Christianity claims not just to know how Christian people work, but how non-Christian people work as well. Christianity tells us how all sin works, and these parents, they teach this to their son. The ones who make these promises, these sinners, listen to what the father tells his son about them. He says that these who are making promises to you, here's what they're really doing. They're fast to kill and they're fast to injure others, but they will ultimately lose. They will not get what they want. They'll spread their nets for birds, but even the birds know what they're doing. They think that they can catch them, but they can't. And the father tells to his son how sin works in the lives of those that are preaching instruction and teaching that is bad. The father tells his son what they're really doing is this. They're killing themselves. By giving everything to get something that is desirable, they're committing suicide. They're ambushing their own lives in verse 18. They're taking away their own lives in verse 19. The mother and the father, they command in the setting of relationship, but in the setting of relationship, they know how sin works. How is this son motivated to not just hear, but to do? He's motivated by mom and dad speaking, offering a command. He knows that they love and cherish him, but also that there are rules and commands that assist the relationships that we have with our parents, but more importantly, the relationship that we have with God. He is holy and righteous and just. And we belong to him. He made the world and he made us. And he has the right to instruct us. And so mom and dad command. But mom and dad also describe how sin works in others. What do you think this requires? It means mom and dad need to understand how sin works in them. It means they need to diagnose their own sin if they'll be able to diagnose the sin that they see in these sinful promise makers. 
The mother and father are able to translate the promises of the sinner and know what is really at stake. The fellowship that they promise, it's not real. And the gain that they promise is not real. And there will be consequences. The mother and the father, they know how sin contorts good relationships so that these relationships lead to death. Do you hear what we've done here? We've looked at the relationship of the teaching and the instruction, and we've listened to the diagnosis of the sinner that's making promises to the man's son. And as we look at the motivation, we see that the man's son needs to understand how sin works out there and in here. And the son needs to listen to the good commands of his father. The instruction and teaching is to be heard and applied. We're commanded to behave according to this instruction and teaching. Behaving a certain way actually promotes the relationship of the one who gives us that teaching and instruction. A relationship with God requires instruction and requires teaching. But here's the warning of the dad, and here's where I want to finish. The alternative to this instruction and teaching from God, it's an instruction and teaching that leads in only one direction. It leads to a relationship that's not good and holy and intimate, but a relationship of self-destruction. A relationship with God requires instruction and teaching, but the alternative to this is a relationship of self-destruction. Here these Proverbs. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you do speak to us, that you speak truth, truthfully and authoritatively. We're grateful that you understand how our hearts work. And we're grateful that you have called us into a relationship with yourself. For all of these things, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.